welcome to the Diversity and Inclusion On Air podcast. This podcast is a program of the Association of American Veterinary Medical College's Diversity Matters Initiative. The podcast explores various issues related to diversity and inclusion in the veterinary profession and provides the AAVMC an opportunity to offer ongoing diversity programming to our member institutions as well as all veterinary professionals. My name is Dr. Lisa Greenhill and I'm the Senior Director for Institutional Research and Diversity at the AAVMC. So on this episode of the show, I am exploring the myth of the model minority. Now, my guest is going to help us really dig into this, but suffice to say that there's a general kind of um, culture out there that uh, some populations where we just have high expectations of academic and professional performance. We expect specifically Asian students and professionals to be great at STEM programs, for example. So when these folks fail to meet our unreasonable expectations, we gasp and clutch our pearls, wondering where they went wrong or questioning versus questioning, really what we should be doing is questioning our, our stereotypes and the biases that inform them. So today to explain the myth of the model minority and its harmful effects, I am joined by Kara Takasaki, a graduate student researcher at the University of Texas at Austin. Her research focuses on shades of this topic and some other things that we're going to talk about today. And I am delighted to welcome her to the show to give us the sociological breakdown of this topic. Welcome, Kara. How are you? I'm doing good. Thank you for that introduction. And I'm excited to have this conversation. All right. Thank you for joining us. So why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about yourself before we dive in? So as you mentioned, I'm a PhD candidate at UT Austin in sociology. I'm also a fourth generation Japanese American. I grew up in Hawaii. Uh, I'm also a type one diabetic and I uh, study of gender and race inequality in paid and unpaid labor. And I've recently been doing a lot of work on COVID-19 in terms of anti-Asian racism with the Stop Hate Reporting Center and on a specific COVID-19 project. My dissertation looks at the work and family lives of Asian American men in Austin in professional occupations. And I've also done some research with STEM graduates uh, looking at race and gender inequality and the transitions into the workforce. Fantastic. So I can't wait to hear more about, like we're gonna have to schedule some time because like now I'm like really interested in some of the other things you're doing too. But we are gonna talk today a bit about some of the COVID research too towards the end of the show. But why don't we just dive into this mythology? What exactly is the myth of the model minority? So the basic stereotype that most Americans would, would reference would be this uh, assumption or expectation, as you said, that Asians are, they're obedient, they're smart at basically math or, or science, they don't cause trouble, they're very quiet. And some of the things that maybe you don't necessarily think of, but sort of get attached onto this stereotype is that they're not very creative. They aren't good leaders um, because they don't speak up. They aren't aggressive. They aren't womanizers. These are, I mean, these are good, in some ways, good and bad things, right? And a lot of these stereotypes are also gendered and sexualized, right? So what's interesting about the myth of the model minority is that people generally don't think about it beyond race, but the the application of the myth is experienced differently by Asian American women, Asian American men, sexual minorities, ethnic minorities, right? Some some yeah. people who would be labeled as Asian in the census wouldn't actually fit the stereotype of, of what we think of when we think of Asian, which tends to be East Asian stereotypes, right? And so that means that maybe they actually more identify, for example, there's a colleague, Anthony Ocampo, who writes about um, 
Filipinos and and their ties or their experiences and similarities to the uh, Latinx community. And maybe most of them may not actually, you know, identify as being uh, East Asian in the ways that that I would, for example, or other um, sort of Chinese, uh, Japanese, Koreans might. Um, and similarly, coming from Hawaii, we know that I did some research as well there where we know that um, Filipino or Filipinos there, right, they experience very similar things that Latinos or Latinx population experiences here in terms of being overrepresented in the blue collar, blue collar jobs in terms of discrimination and um, sort of ethnic jokes and things like that. So we know that there's a lot of diversity even within when we talk about the model minority stereotype, it's not actually experienced the same way for all Asians. Yeah, wow. So what, you know, Clearly, this is a problem, right? So, so what are the effects for for these populations? Because I mean, I think that the other challenge, and, and a lot of the data certainly that I collect for the association, you know, we just kind of have Asian, and we know that there's numerous ethnicities within that category, and there's so much diversity. To your point, where folks within the, the community are experiencing. They're experiencing life very, very differently. So, so what are some of the effects of this kind of model minority mythology? Yeah, so I think to even frame this conversation, we should remember that, like, so to start, right, race, race, the, the where does race come from? Race comes, it's a, it's a concept that's been used to, to exert power over groups of people, right? It was, it was made to to hold dominance over other groups. And so um, when we think about how labels for races came about, when we think of like the census and the ways that these categories have changed, it's still, it's, it's, it's socially constructed, right? And so to the extent that you say that someone is Asian, there's always, in terms of the census at least, like different groups or ethnicities or religions or whatever being incorporated or not incorporated or seen as a race versus a, an, an ethnicity, if you think about like the Latinx population. And so even within then, within like a racial group like Asian American, which really is actually like a relatively new label, right? That came out of a lot of activism in order for this group to, to advocate for themselves, right? Means that not, not even the more recent, I would say, additions to this group or recent populations that have grown recently, like weren't, may not see themselves even in that, may not see themselves as represented or recognized when that category is applied. So when you talk about what the effects of this model minority myth is for this group, it ranges from everything, right? So from everything to, like I said, within the group, you can have, there's there's one way to see it, which is like, there's an advantage, right? Where the sense of like, well, it's good that I'm be, if I'm going to be stereotyped, at least I'm stereotyped as someone who like doesn't cause trouble, isn't reliant on social welfare and like, you know, is smart, right? There's, there's worse things I could be stereotyped for, but there, there does create certain inequalities then, right? That happen where, for example, if you are, uh, we can talk about research, I think I mentioned this before, about like disabilities, right? For example, where if you're a student and let's say you're an African or you're a Black student or a Latinx student, maybe you're being tracked into lower, a lower achieving class, right? So you sort of uh, don't get the same high level training into like math, for example, because they expect you to not perform well. Well, maybe you're an Asian student who whose parents, right, are working class immigrants who don't speak English very well, they don't know the U.S. education system. They have you and, and all your brothers and sisters, right? And essentially, you're being put into this high-level math class because they think you're some smart Chinese student with rich parents, right? But you're not, 
And so what ends up happening is you can imagine the sort of stress, trauma, inability to reach, to, to belong in those resources, the constant failing of those expectations, right? And, and in some ways, I mean, maybe it's good. Maybe you rise to the occasion and you, you do really well and, and it does happen, right? Because you have access to the resources. But in other situations, I mean, it can be, it can be really bad, right? In the a sense of like, what's wrong with this person, right? That they aren't, they aren't inherently smart, right? Falling through the cracks. And the same idea applies in terms of social support resources. So when we think about, like I've done a lot of work with in terms of like domestic violence and uh, intimate mm. partner violence, and what ends up happening is that you don't, while you see resource, like you see resources for, for example, refugees, certain Asian, Asian groups, right? Specifically with like ESL types of groups, mm-hmm. but you sure. may not see sure. the same sort of outreach or support for someone who would appear as like the model minority woman, right? Or you sort of expect, um, there may not be outreach, there may not be even within the communities support for outreach for mental health resources. And then when you think about the sorts of resources that are available, even now, like I've done work with fatherhood programs where they do provide these interventions, for example, for at-risk Latinx and uh, black men, but there really is nothing for Asian American men or, right, there, there's no outreach. There's no, it's like they don't even exist, right? Or this isn't a problem for them. And so I think what's interesting is that this stereotype really makes this sort of assumption that Asian Americans don't have problems. They're doing well. Why should we do outreach to help them, right? And I think that's a huge problem because they're humans and they do have, you know, disabilities. They do yeah. have these varied histories because of immigration history and, and racism. Even, I mean, relatively recent, right? And I mean, before 1965, there wasn't, there wasn't model minority. There was the yellow peril. So, so you mm. can imagine that even within a few generations, like my grandparents would, would totally be teaching me how to overcome racism in a way that like, I'm experiencing racism very differently, right? Where I, I was on a board for the Austin's Asian American Advisory Board for the City Council, and you can see even the people who are on that board, right, being of a certain select class of people who have the time and the energy and the education to, to do this work, but also that when we would hear from some of the advocates of the older generation coming in to be heard at the hearings, their concern was not so much, oh, we don't get enough help. Their concern was, oh, we're, we're doing so well, like we, we want to be represented better, right? And so even within like communities, you have an older guard of like the model minority was a really important political initiative. Like it was really important that we be seen as, you know, closer to white than to black or Latinx because that meant that we could get citizenship. That meant we could get rights. That meant we could get jobs and support our families, right? That meant we could even bring our families, right? Because in the past immigration, you couldn't even bring women, right? Or children or whatever. And so that was really useful for them. So then when you have this younger generation of my generation where we're like, it's really important that we create solidarities with other minority groups, right? That's like a different set of political goals, which is shaped by our, you know, current history or or where we are right now. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I, it's really interesting because I mean, you know, it is, there's this sense of, hey, yeah, there are benefits to, there, I can see that old guard saying there's benefits to this mythology without, without kind of over, a, over a generation or two thinking about how then it makes you invisible almost in communities in terms of, you know, that the mythology becomes institutionalized in a way that, you know, oh, well, those resources aren't needed for those folks. And and I mean, even in thinking about the social uprising of this summer, 
I've heard very other than, I mean, before that it was, okay, so we are recognizing that there are issues around racism related to COVID-19 for Asians and Asian Americans. But in terms of the social unrest regarding race, there's just, it seems there's almost relative silence about the lived experience of Asian Americans in that respect. And, and yeah, just... Yeah, I, I would just add, I would just add. I think because I've been doing this research now on COVID nineteen, and I know we're going to talk about this, so maybe yeah. this is a part of that. In general, I think what's interesting about the racialization of Asians in the U.S. and in terms of like the history that's been written about them is that the reason why it's important to study Asian Americans and we don't when we tend to think about race and race problems is that you're hiding, you're creating a political silence that really continues racism in the way that it exists, which mm. is that, there, I, like, even for me, only recently in grad school, like, my whole life I've been told, coming up in Hawaii, right, where Japanese Americans have this, like, long history and, and have dominance in ways that, like, Native Hawaiians, like, you know, experienced what Native Indians did in the U.S. or Filipinos experienced what Latinx uh, pop populations did in the U.S. Like, so Japanese Americans are very privileged in Hawaii. And so my whole life, I've been told this story of privilege and honor and just, you know, like, just mm. amazing citizens that were wrong during internment, right? But but there's this other side of the story that I, I didn't really hear until, for example, if you've seen George Takei's Broadway musical, it's really great, uh, Allegiance. But like my brother and I went to see that and I was crying because essentially there it, it reflected like a history book that I had read by Ichiro Azuma um, on the sort of battle even within the community to not necessarily to be represented as the model minority, right? And in, in the sense of that, or the good immigrants, um, Madeline Shu would say at, at UT Austin, because there was essentially a lot of protest, like within Asian Amer Japanese Americans, that they were being wronged when they were interned, right? That that right. they're good citizens and the U.S. is wronging them, and so they didn't want to go to internment camps peacefully, and so many of those people left, right, or were deported, or or essentially, and so I think that story gets really well hidden by history books because there is this political racial project that benefits when you can think of sort of immigration policies and and where where a lot of these industries are getting you know top talent for low prices in terms of h1b visas and and that sort of thing you there's this thing that is profitable not only for that but also for a system of racism that pits minorities against each other to say that asian americans are the model, are the minority that is both smart and educated and has made it right successfully in ways that other minorities haven't and that they're not causing trouble, right? And, and then I think right. that the point is that there's this history of activism that gets really invisibilized of like what Asian, how Asian Americans have been very active in protesting and, and allying themselves with other groups. And so even in the Stop Hate, API Hate Reporting Center project, there's a article I have on, on the founding of the center that's coming out in the Journal of Asian American Studies in October, which is basically talking about how even the reporting center's founding, which has gotten a lot of press in the news in terms of like collecting data on these reports of anti-Asian incidents due to COVID-19, is informed by this long history of political activism, both on the grassroots level and on the political level, particularly, I mean, on the coast, but you know, ideally those histories exist in other places, we just haven't heard them, right? And so I think that's really important to like, uh, that whole model minority aspect is like, you you're not telling the whole story right and that's and that's bad because it also perpetuates a system that seems to say 
the system works, but it, it really doesn't, right? Right, right. And it also, I mean, it, it is very, you know, it's it's very uh, damaging, I think, to the relationships with other with other minoritized groups, right, and other folks with marginalized identities, because it, I mean, it just kind of again, the system <laughs> then kind of builds itself around this myth and saying, why aren't you like them? Right? Why aren't you like them? Not recognizing that their lived experience is still a marginalized experience in this country, right? And so it really does us all a disservice in really how pervasive the mythology is. So, Kara, why don't you tell us a little bit about your research? Which part? My dissertation or other? <laughs> yeah, sure, I mean, which project? Research. Sure. Yeah, so I, I'm doing, I've done interviews with Asian American men, so U.S. born Asian American men in the Austin area who live and work there and they're in professional occupations, so white collar occupations. Most of them have college degrees, if not graduate degrees, but also most of them come from our second generation. A few are third or fourth, but mostly second generation where their parents are, are immigrants, right, coming from Asian countries. And although... Uh, and because it's in uh, Texas or it's in Austin in particular, those demographics of who the Asian Americans are reflect that. So I mostly I'm in, have interviewed mostly Chinese or Chinese diaspora, like Taiwanese population, as well as some South Asians, some Japanese, Korean, Vietnamese, and Filipino men as well. But all of them, but you, you could see how it tends to run more Chinese or South Asian because of class demographics. Right. And so... Um, but yeah, so I'm doing interviews with them. And basically the whole point of that research is to get at, I wanted to get at some of those, what we talked about when we say there are these silences in the research and in the public discourse about Asian Americans that exist and have continued to exist for, for political reasons, for uh, reasons to support this narrative of the way that race works in the US, right? And so I thought I should interview the people that we would assume by race and gender are for minorities are the have no problems, right? We should interview the the professional Asian men, right? Who earn more sort of on average, uh, even though averages lie as we know for, because they're not desegregated, but on average, right, are more educated and earn more than white men, which tend to be the standard, right? And so, uh, and my question was like, how is this, like, I think a lot of the research has been, how do Asians raise such smart kids, right? How this tiger parenting thing, how do they, how do they do this, right? And, and the thing is like, my research is like, well, not only like, how do they do this, but are there like costs, right? Like what is the cost of like trying to meet those expectations given your, your context, right? The specific context of Asian Americans in the US, are there costs, right? Is it really, is life really as good as we, as we would assume it is for this model minority, right? And, and of course, what I found out was that there's a reason for these silences, right? There's a very political reason, which is that we the model minority stereotype is about education and income, but it's not about the other aspects of quality that people measure in terms of what makes a good life, right? So when we think about the research on like the quality of social relationships, like health, family, housing, right? When we measure income or when we measure poverty in the US, we have this very dated measure of just income, right? Other countries measure poverty in terms of health poverty, housing poverty, relationship poverty, right? But we don't. And so in the US, Asian Americans have found this place of fitting in and citizenship and, and, you know, limited belonging in some ways because they have fit the need for the U.S. to just talk about profit, right? Capitalism, money. And so that's, that's where they fit in. But the problem is that when you make that concession, when you try to make yourself fit into what that stereotype is, what gets lost is 
you're not getting access to resources, right, in terms of like family needs, caregiving, um, health issues, mental health issues, things like, and, and some of these things have turned out where when you talk about that immigration policy that selects for people who are, who have enough resources to come, who are also educated enough to meet the requirements for what the U.S. wants in terms of skilled workers, but also are like, giving up entire lives and communities of support, right, to come to this new place across an ocean where they may, like, know nobody or have very little, like, access or knowledge of the place, right? And so you're talking about a select sample of people that are making up this population that really are, like, the overachievers of the overachievers, right? And so when you think about the kinds of families that these people have, they're going to put everything towards that achievement. So, so the story you tell about Asian Americans is that oh, for these people who've made it because of class and education, and then they're experiencing downward mobility, right? These parents are experiencing downward mobility because their language and their degrees are not recognized the same way in the U.S. as U.S. degrees and language, you know, cultural knowledge, right? And professional occupations. They're telling their children, you need to outwork racism. You need to be even more of a model minority, put your head down, work harder than everyone else. So even if, you know, so because for them, it's like, their ability to just be human and talk and whatever is not being recognized as, as something that as a person who is, you know, legible in like a professional occupational, like cultural office, right? And so only what's recognized is how technically skilled are you, right? And so what ends up happening is you get these kids who spend their whole lives being, because of, I, I'm gonna, I, in my article, I'm talking about this uh, theory called like restric restrictive, there's a there's a theory in, in sociology about, uh, from LaRoe on, concerted cultivation and natural development. And so essentially what I'm saying is with the Asian American situation, it's not that it's not that they're being nurtured into these like, into like the tiger parenting model. And they're also not just being left alone, but what you end up having is, is this incorporation of, of Asian Americans in immigrant, like for example, grocery stores or convenience stores or family restaurants, right? Where they can't just, they don't have the money and the resources and the cultural capital to go out and play soccer and join art clubs and go to summer camp. Their parents are basically saying, you come home, you help at the restaurant, and then you do your schoolwork and that's it. And like, that's, that's it, right? And so you have these students who are not getting the same sort of like dating experiences, friendships, athletic activities, right? But they are sort of getting this like, full on force on like the only thing we do care about is education, even if we can't help you do it. Right. And so what ends up happening is these adult men, I'm interviewing them. And it's like, when they finally have, have gotten the job that secures them the financial, you know, success that their parents like want them to have security. Right. It doesn't necessarily have to be leadership, but it needs to be a certain income and job security. Then they're like, Oh, well now I want a life. Right. Now I want to like, date and like get married or, or maybe not maybe I actually just don't want any responsibilities anymore because I'm gonna have to pay for my parents health care right because they're they're restaurateurs or I'm gonna have to pay for my siblings education right or my cousins or whatever and so it's essentially like it ends up being like this you end up having these bachelors right these professional these men who are like very well off very well educated but experiencing a lot of relationship problems either like at work where they're not seen as like leaders. So even though they're highly skilled, they're not getting these leadership positions or you're seeing it in like friendships where their types of jobs are so um, demanding that they're not getting time to really like invest in friendships in a deep way or they don't know how or in dating and marriage, right? We see inequalities there in terms of when we talk about sexualities and Asian women doing very well in dating markets, but Asian men not doing so well. And it's, and it's a lot of this has to do with that racialization, that sexualization coming back all the way from history where Asian men would come 
and not be able to bring wives, right? So seeing them as like asexual individuals, seeing them feminized in, in media, right? As like men who, who aren't sexual in any way. And basically like in these dating systems where maybe they grew up in households where you don't have that sort of cultural capital that you would get if you were like a white man or even a black man or a Latin American man, right? That people are into sports, people are into music, people are talking about the you know cultural stuff that's going on. But in these households, their parents are immigrants. They didn't grow up in the U.S. They're not living lives where they can like go see movies or like talk about dating, right? Maybe it was like arranged marriages. So these men are, are going to situations where they actually have not dated because they weren't allowed to and then, or didn't have time to, and then they don't necessarily know how to do it, right? Or how to deal with emotions or how to like, and so what you end up seeing is like, yes, the story of success is about high incomes, high education, but the context in which they live, which may be like paying for a lot of family members, being the social security for their parents, living in high cost areas, or, or just like, again, the quality of relationships as adults, yeah. there's a cost. Sounds like a huge cost huge cost but the thing is nobody wants to measure that right because it doesn't suit it doesn't suit the story the political story that separates minorities and pits against them against each other right it doesn't suit the story of this group has made it wow wow yeah i mean it you know it, it's it's really interesting because i mean yes we know that the, there's there's this very persistent mythology but it doesn't seem like you know you soon as you start scratching scratching that you realize that certainly it's a myth but but even the pursuit of trying to embody the myth is so costly so costly wow wow so to tie this to vetmed you know what might be some of the implications for this mythology you know i think that that we know that Asian American students are of all populations are underrepresented in, in vet med. And it is one of the fastest growing populations in the profession. But, you know, I, I, I just know that there's whiffs of this mythology and kind of expectation like, okay, well, the population is growing. They're going to be fine. Right. And even when we talk about support systems for, you know, BIPOC students as Black, Indigenous, people of color, and people of color for our listeners and viewers. Yeah, we know that POC is a catch-all, but a lot of folks don't even necessarily think about Asian Americans being a part of that population. So, you know, for a profession that is struggling with diversity in general, you know, what are some of the implications of this mythology? Yeah, so, so, oh, there's, so there's a number of things that I can think of. In terms of for, I specifically study work and occupations. And so one thing that I, I would assume is also true, because this is also a professional occupation that comes from the sciences, would be that at least, uh, on, so on one level, I guess, so on one level, and you could speak to this sure. and push back on it and whatnot. What I see with the men that I've interviewed is that there's, uh, for professional occupations, Maybe for if you're a veterinarian and you just want to get the job and, and sort of stay there and not take in sort of any leadership or sort of higher level types of positions, that might be, it may, it may not come up. But for people who are in personal occupations and are sort of striving for any sort of authority or leadership type position where they're changing the field or, you know, trying to shape public discourse for their profession, um, there's a lot of barriers that that occur, which which maybe you 
if that's something you want and you don't have a person who can advocate for you, who can mentor you, who can show you um, how to overcome things or support you, uh, or who doesn't really see you as someone who would strive in that way, who would, who would want something like that, then you really do get invisibilized. And so I think it's, at least for in other, in other occupations, um, you see, what I see is that some of these, and, and this is not only men, right? I think a lot of these things also translate for women, but they may look different because of uh, gender and sexuality, um, or gender and sexism rather, is that this idea that, oh, you don't speak up, so we're not gonna, we're not gonna promote you to this position, or we don't think you will speak up, or you're not leading in the correct way, or you're not, you know, as funny as this guy, or you're not as like easygoing as this person, or you don't understand these jokes, or we're not gonna invite you to this dinner party or this beer with the guys or something. And so I think what ends up happening is that in professional occupations where trust is built, which tends to like lead to, you know, opportunities, Asian Americans tend to really get left behind. And so, and I mean, there's ways that, you know, I think these men and women are very smart. Like they see that they, so they find ways. And I think black, there's been studies of, of black professionals who do the same thing, right? This idea that you whiten yourself or you sort of make yourself fit into the expectation, right? So maybe for Asians, it's like, I decided not to bring my like smelly food to work because that will stink up the office. Or I decide to only talk about the exciting, the the like exotic or fun. Th- so the sushi of a- boba, boba is easy, right? Boba in Asia, but not but not the cultural, not, not the political unrest that is like happening in Asia, right? right. Like there are th- some things that are palatable about your identity that can be mainstreamed, right? For mm-hmm. for a white culture for a white office that's like oh that's fun like you you have a you know cultural dress for like this event but like mm-hmm. right that's that's like fun but but there's no aspect of like oh there's a history of colonization that this dress actually appeared in your culture because we came and like took all your resources or something <laughs> and so i think i think there's that aspect of like only showing up in certain ways right that is that will allow the uh, a white culture to say that they're diverse and that you're there physically there but that and that you represent something but you're not actually allowed to really change the culture in the office or um or be seen in a full way right because because you're not given that voice right you're just supposed to sort of represent diversity but not um change anything of any sort of organizational process yeah, I mean, you know, we we see very, very few Asians in positions of leadership. We don't have, and there are very few kind of at that associate dean level. There's none, at least in the U.S. currently, I think, at the deanship level. And even in organized veterinary medicine, I'm just not, we're not seeing, we know that there, there are a few here and there, but we're not really seeing folks ascend to the very visible leadership. Yeah positions and you know and and this issue of you know the the you know food and yeah okay well you don't we don't you know folks might not bring their lunch but oh boy like ooh, what are you bringing to the international dinner right and, you yeah. know, or like you know are you going to dress up in your you know yeah. neighbor clothing you know yeah. you know and tim wise talks about that being um you know the food festival and fabrics kind of <laughs> approach to diversity and how superficial it is because it really um kind of puts folks in a box and it's like okay well you can come out here's your month you're yeah. here's heritage month and we're going to do some stuff and we're going to have sushi and yeah. okay there's that and then you know we're gonna have a dress up day and you know and it's it's very superficial ver- versus um, getting into some of those tough questions and really 
even understanding the diversity within um, this, this population. So we do have a question from a watcher right now, a viewer. Dr. Susan Williams wants to know how many of your subjects are now wanting to leave their respective professions that their parents may have pushed them towards? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think what's interesting is that, I think that's what's so interesting, right? Is that when I talk to my white, my, my, the white men, they have these varied job histories where they were allowed to like do all kinds of things when they were growing up, explore all kinds of things, have these very like varied ways to their positions. And even when they get there, it's kind of like by luck, right? Is how they see it, that they got promoted or that they get along with their boss or that. And with these men, it's like, it's like, they're not happy, but they don't, it's not a problem. It's, it's like they don't see it as a problem in the way that like these white men would be like, it didn't work out for me. So I just did something else because no problem. Right. It's like it's like that's just what you do. But with these men, it's like they've been raised in households where jobs were never like a thing that you did out of like passion. Right. Jobs were like the thing that kept you that allowed you to one, come to the country two kept you fed right? Like that it was essentially like, there, there was no sense of like, oh, you can like take financial risks and like leave this, no matter how badly you were treated, right? By your, it, it was like, no, like you had, like, just like other minorities, like the, the job was not about like fulfilling yourself. It was like, there was a, it was, and particularly, and particularly for Asians, it was like, this is the only way that you're able to access any sense of like being treated well, right? Mm -hmm. That you have a job and you're Asian. That's like the one thing. Right. It's right. not because you play sports or it's not because you are super sexual and, and like attractive. It's because unless you're a woman. Right. But but essentially, like it's because you have a job. And so um, and so I, with these men, it's, it's like even if they aren't fulfilled by their jobs, they see that they have at least reached the one goal that they were told to do from the very beginning in all ways possible, which is job security and income. Right. That's like the one thing their their parents who have wanted for them their whole lives that their family depends on. And so if they do have things that they never got to do, which would be like sports, traveling, creative, artistic things, right? Now it's like, how do I do that with the time I with with the limited time that I have for my occupation? And that means for a lot of them, it's like putting off family, right? It's like I, I can't have children yet because I want to like fulfill my childhood, <laughs> you know, desires. And that yeah. takes time and that takes money. And like if I have kids. I can't, I can't do any of those things, right? And not only that, but I'm going to have ailing parents who, one, need my help translating, two, probably want to go back to Asia often, right? Three, maybe I need to build them a house, right? Like, there, there's a lot of things that, that end up happening because of the social context that people don't usually think about when they think about Asian Americans that mean that these men are not, I mean, one of the more disparities that you can talk about when you talk about representation, creative arts, multimedia, right? These industries where Asians are not getting a lot of right, are sort of only now being recognized in any way and have very low representation, right? Part of it is that, is that they've been told their whole lives to go into these stereotypical professions that are supposed to provide citizenship, provide job security, right? And really not, it's not any sense of like, oh, you should leave if it doesn't work out, right? It's more, no, this is like, this is what you're supposed to do, right? And there's no, and there's no real history. There's wow. no support from your networks to say, yes, go follow your dream, right? But it's wow. really like the dream is that you've reached it. You've reached the dream, which wow. is to have a high paying job. And, and, and the family is- And, and all of the responsibilities that come with that. <laughs> right. And what's interesting is that then wow. you have some parents who will be like, oh, well, where are my grandchildren? It's like, okay, so you just went from telling me my whole life, I'm supposed to like get this super crazy job. And now I'm suddenly supposed to just pop out kids without ever having like, you know, figured out how to have a family. Like, because wow. when you think about the, their parents, they're working 
two jobs that are not very enjoyable that all the time, right? A lot of these kids never saw their dads, right? Never spoke to them because there were language and cultural gaps. And you're like, I want to be a father in this progressive idea of like emotional, like support and like help and like, but you've never really experienced that with your own father. How are you going to do that? Right. And there's no, there's no sense of, of that, of that community, that support that, that you even need that. Right. It just naturally happens. Parenting just like happens. Right. It's, right. it's not true. Wow. I mean, it just ends up being kind of this trap that kind of <laughs> replicates in some ways, it sounds like. So, you know, you've got these parents that are just working so hard and their jobs are not dream jobs. Their jobs are jobs are functional, right? Yes. Jobs are means to an end yeah. versus uh, and the end is, you know, is financial stability yeah. right? and the ability yeah. to to, you know, provide for for your parents yeah, who, of course, you know, everybody's, you know, all the groups have the parents that are like, so where are the grandkids, <laughs> right? You know, like they're like tapping their watch. Yeah. But yeah, if you if you didn't have practice in dating because you were so focused, you know, and I mean, I think that that certainly in there are certainly other kind of parallel experiences, certainly like with African-American women, like, you know, we're going Yes. Those masters, we're getting the PhDs, we're getting the professional degrees. And then, you know, we are trying to date, but then we look around and we're like, oh, okay, well, it's just us, right? So we're just kind of hanging out, going to brunch. Yeah. <laughs> so, yes. So yeah, this is, this is, it's wild. Wow. So uh, one follow-up question, does the myth become less as there are more U.S. born generations? That is also a really great question. And so I think what's really interesting is to watch how the population is changing. So even now, there's still a majority of Asians born outside of the U.S. in terms of the Asian population in the U.S. But like this question, or this person has just sure. said, that population is changing to now, now those generations are having children, right? Like me, like I'm a third and fourth generation from my family. And so as that population grows, right, you see these changing the changing goals, sort of political goals of like the group, right? Where you're seeing uh, like, for example, even activism around like Black Lives Matter, more solidarities, the, the unearthing of histories that otherwise have been invisible, right? To give people the means to understand their histories in the US as well as their ties to like other minority groups and to see and to build up political structures and representation and ways for like things like the Stop API Hate Reporting Center to become quickly a reality, right? Would not have been possible like pre 9-11, right? Because there was no, there was no call for like, oh my gosh, we really need these resources when things, when these human rights violations happen. And so I think that's very true. Like, I think the myth over generations, like when you see, well, I would, I would take a step back and say when in immigration research, we know, and a lot of this has come out of Latinx research where you see the first generation being like experiencing that downward mobility, basically select people, right, coming, are, are healthy, are, have the resources to move, keeping their heads down, working really hard, sacrificing for their children. Then you see the second generation ex experience high social mobility, right, on average, where they're basically having all this pressure to, like, make it, right, at, since their parents, like, gave them the sort of immigrant debt. And so they tend to do better than sort of their average, the average population of their peers. And then in the third generation and, and probably downwards, right, you see sort of, again, that like averaging out to like what the average um, U.S. population would look like in terms of like degrees and, and education and achievements, right? And you see that happening maybe by the third or fourth generation. And I think what's also interesting to note is that we know from immigration research, again, health research, that 
when, and I'm not sure if this is over multiple generations, but we know that when immigrants come to the US, their health gets worse, right? So we know that, that the stress of immigration causes stress on these families. And so the same thing, you can imagine stressed parents, right, with children, right, experiencing the, and so even when we talk about like future families and whatnot, I wanted to make this point to what I had said before, which is that even if maybe these men can talk about, oh, of course I'm going to have children, they, they, because it's like accepted, right, in terms of like every, right. you know, if you have children, you're like a, you're like a good father, a man, right, it's about a social role, they, they wait too long, because what ends up happening is that they, they themselves maybe did not have ideal childhoods, right, what they saw on TV was not what they experienced at home, and so this idea of like, do I want to have children and the amount of work that my parents said having children was and the amount of stress it was, do I really want that for my whole life? My whole life I've been stressed out about school. Maybe what would be best is to just kind of be a bachelor until, and, you know, and, and by the time they're 40, you know, some maybe around 40 and they're like, oh, it's kind of too late to have kids because I'm not going to have the energy to play with them. Plus I'm working this like, you know, this really great job and I want to be a CEO and I have to work harder than everyone else because when they evaluate my resume to everyone else's, they don't look at, they don't look at how I'm more qualified, right? They just look at the fact that I'm Asian. So, um, so I think it sets up a lot of these weird sort of, not weird, but almost like sets up a context where you're seeing these costs and benefits that if you only look at one side, which is just the success side, like what is success in the U.S., you don't see the the way that the the costs are affecting, right? Yeah, sure. The decisions. I suppose. Wow. Wow. So before we talk about a bit about COVID, I want to ask, what can we all do as a society to kind of help stamp this out? Like, how do we, how do we try to break this mythology? Yeah. So, well, I think that, I think that, well, <laughs> no, so this small is, question, Kara. Small I know, question. I know, I know. It's, it's just the thing. It, the reason I sigh is because it is so frustrating because just like all of the other systems where you're like, we know sexism is bad. Why does it still exist? We know gender inequality exists. Why does it still exist, right? Like the same thing with, with this. It's like, we know that the model minority is a myth. We know that it's a stereotype. Why does it still exist, right? And there are reasons. And the reasons, and like we had just said, is that there are political, there are political reasons that profit people, right? That profit a system in certain ways that, that create inequities and justify them, right? And so I think, how do you stamp it out? I, I really believe, that that there are two things that can really make a difference, and one is one is in the in the realm of well, because I'm a social science researcher, there are these pushes to disaggregate data. When we see like yeah. in the in the census, like this these forums of like costs and benefits of of the kind of so I, when I was on the advisory board for uh, the city of Boston's Asian American advisory board, and we did the first survey of the Asian American population here. The reason that we saw such huge health disparities that would not be captured in a national survey is that we put in all of our resources into translating the survey into five different, five of the top spoken languages in the area, doing extensive outreach to, you know, religious organizations, markets, restaurants, community centers, right? Essentially, it was like, we want to reach these, these populations and we want to reach them with translators and people that will that will allow them to, to be seen and heard, right? And so right. the thing is like, you don't usually have that investment in, in, in the normal data, you know, the big the big sort of, how do we examine inequality, right? We don't even see Asians often in, as like a, as, it's just an other group. And so the thing is like, 
and so on one level, how do you how do you work on stamping out this mythology? It's making people seen, right? Making people seem as humans, not not just as like we only show up in in employment and income, right? As as the highest earners, right? We have to show up in in all of the in all of the research, like in in social services and health, in in domestic violence and in child abuse and, and all of those things we need to show up. Uh, disabilities, right? We need to do a better job of documenting these things, not just assuming that Asians don't have disabilities. On one level, it's being seen. And, and I think the more important reason of why do people need to be seen, why do these differences matter, is that it humanizes them, right? Yeah. It means that you go beyond the stereotype to see how they are just like every other every other person from every other racial group, right? The story that we've created the myth around is a is a story born out of immigration policies, right? It's not born out of like because when you look at, for example, when you, we talked about activism, or if we talk about activism, like Asians are extremely activist in other Asian countries. Think about Hong Kong or whatever, uh, Taiwan. Like, but so you can't just assume that Asians somehow came to the U.S. and suddenly there was no activism gene, right? It, it, it's that you selected certain people, or you're silencing them, right? You're, you're just not hearing them. So that's one level. And then the other level is this is this aspect of solidarity, which is which is act, which is actually the same sort of goal in the sense that the more that you're able to show, particularly through history, the ways that that race has been used as a tool to separate groups, to pit them against each other, to oppress them, right? To justify the way people are treated unjustly. That sort of education, that sort of awareness, that sort of um, seeking of, of how, to, how to build commonality across race, across the divisions of race, and across intersections of race, for example, that you can see like white working class people being oppressed by similar systems that that immigrants right or, or sexual minorities are oppressed by, and it's like you need to draw those those solidarities with other oppressed groups in order to really fight effectively the kinds of things that are being done right by by powerful people who have more resources and more time. And so I think when you say to stamp out the mythology, it really means a sense of what are the things that we can do not only to believe that it's a myth but to show how how to be able to show that that these group of people are humans and are not necessarily even a, a group more than anyone else right. is a group right and i think that's that's the hard work is that so much of race and racism is 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 about visual is about visuals right it's about physical physical representations and biological assumptions that people are different when we know that when we actually look at a lot of this critical science and biological research, a lot of those differences are pretty much infinitesimal, like in terms yeah. of like, there are more commonalities than differences, right? Yeah, yeah. So we do have uh, one more question from the chat. How does the model minority myth affect mental health? And this is, this is from a pre-vet student who I know personally, he is, he is Asian. He says, because you know, immigrant parents believe in ghosts, but not mental illness, LOL. So <laughs> Yeah, oh yeah, superstitions, yep. <laughs> yep, but not yeah. There are certain yeah, exactly. Oh, I hear you. Um, oh, mental health is probably the one area of research on Asian Americans that I would say actually gets some funding, gets some, uh, gets some space in in yeah. in, disc in psychological discourse at, uh, research at least. And I think and, and basically all it's saying to that extent is that there is a great need for mental health resources, and there is a great lack. Of, of success in that area, um, both in funding and outreach. And, and I think it's something that I feel like is growing and is needed and needs visibility. But, but I think the truth is, is just as you basically said, is that it's a lot of it has to do with, with 
education and outreach that for for a population who's who's like I said most of the population is born outside of the U.S. where mm-hmm. they're bringing not only a, a context of what health is there but they're bringing it to a place where health health is measured and thought about and very differently and not mm-hmm. only that but the kinds of needs that these these parents might have like the kinds of issues that they're having in terms of getting used to a U.S. population or a cultural expectation or racism, like these providers who may not be equipped for, like I'm part of this network in Austin that is constantly asking for like, we need a translator, psychiatrist, a psychologist who is versed in this, who works with this population, who can, because essentially uh, not only is there not resources, people aren't equipped to handle these sorts of things because they don't, right? They, they're they're not trained. They don't know what the issues are. They don't know how to help. Mm-hmm. Um, they 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 don't have the language ability. They and so I think what's up happening is that it's it's situation where one the problems aren't recognized, like in families and homes, um, mm-hmm. among friends and communities, it's stigmatized. And then on the other hand, there's there's no outreach, there's no resources, there's no education or or normalizing of like. If other people can get mental health support, why can't Asians get mental health support? Like there's there's no sense of like, that's a weird thing, right? And and it comes from that again, coming back to the stereotype, Asians are fine. If they earn money, they must be doing well. They don't need help with anything else, right? And we know that's not true because there are costs, right? Like I just talked about. And so I think, I think that's a great question is like, how do you fix this thing that's been going on? And it's, it's really like, again, I think what we said, breaking down that myth that Asians yeah. are doing fine and don't need help, right? Yeah. They're not humans. So, so I want to take this moment, though, to say to our member institutions with well-being programs, check on your Asian students. Don't assume that their silence means that they're okay. So I, I think that that's one way that that in academic veterinary medicine, we can be really intentional about doing that outreach, checking in on those students as well as those faculty who are just kind of conditioned not to talk about it, not to complain about it because you know they've reached this level and this level yes. is yeah. equal to its success. And so this is just what it looks like, what it feels like, it's crappy. Okay, move on, right? And so so to our, our colleagues in the colleges, check on your Asian students, faculty and staff. So let's switch gears in in our last few minutes a bit to talk about racism against Asian and Asian American in the time of COVID. So as you know, Kara, I did a, a show on this a few months ago, really early in the pandemic, but you know, clearly language continues to be used <laughs> at the highest yeah. level of our government, yeah. as well as, you know, at the local levels, you know, so, so let's talk about that impact. I mean, you know, we, for those of us that work in and around diversity, equity, and inclusion spaces, you know, we kind of know the impact, but for folks that are not kind of, you know, you know, in, in those spaces, in those kinds of conversations, what's, what's the impact of this very specific kind of racism? Yeah, so, well, I'm sure as everyone knows, the fact that anytime a person who has power, leadership, authority is setting a standard, a norm- normalizing any sort of behavior, there are trickle-down effects, right? And so, I'm, I've worked with the AAPI Stop Hate Reporting Center, Dr. Russell Jung and his uh, community organizer partners. And we've seen from starting with news coverage and then moving on to actual reports that when, for example, the president uh, uses you know, rhetoric like Kung flu, Chinese virus, China virus, Wuhan virus, 
it, it enable like these these incidents, these racist anti-Asian incidents uh, rise, the reports right. rise. And so so there's that. And again, even there's so much to be unpacked there because there's differences like women, for example, women and elderly having maybe being more vulnerable, getting more, reporting more, experiencing more of these racist incidents because maybe there were people who were already, you know, being already vulnerable and then now doubly sort of being seen as targets and people who won't fight back to that sort of uh, treatment. It could also be underreporting, right? Again, this idea of Asian men trying to reach a certain masculinity, not wanting to seem weak by, by saying that they're experiencing these kinds of racist incidents. We see, you know, of course, downturns in business. So uh, talking about those small businesses that, that keep a lot of the, the Asian American population going, like these things that cause family trauma, cause stress in these, in these families, basically taking hard hits, right? Closing down restaurants, businesses, markets, not being able to, to um, turn a profit anymore. And then, and as well as the types of incidents, right? So when we had started the reporting center being like, well, you know, we would love for this to be housed in the government, or we would love for, you know, there to be some sort of real enforcement or response to when these things happen. But, mm-hmm. but you know, in terms of the ability of law, of our law to like protect people for hate crimes, just like sexual violence, these legal tools are really inept or unable in, to even there's no there's no legacy or precedence of prosecuting at a at a rate that makes it worth it right for anyone to really even go through the process of trying to of trying to report something unless it's it's truly reaches the level of a hate crime which would be like you know like evidence of physical assault and and the kind of trauma you then have to go to to prove that and like what happens to your family and all of that stuff and so and so even though there are these incidents the vast majority ends up being more of like verbal harassment, people, you know, spray painting things on property or vandalism or shouting something at someone as they run by, right? And so this idea that, or at a supermarket, right? Just like, so people, and so I think what we see is, is even during a lockdown where no one is supposed to be interacting with each other, people still want to, you know, put themselves at risk by like telling, you know, terrible things to people like face it. And it's just like, so I think, I think there's, you know, obviously impacts where Asian, I, I know in my community, people are like, I don't want to go out. Like I'm scared, like woman, right. Being like, I don't want to go shopping. I'm going to pay extra money to have things delivered or my husband is going to go or, and then that's for people who can like afford these kinds of things. But there are some people who don't have that option. They have to go to the convenience store. They have to, they're already vulnerable. Right. And they don't have an option, but they have to be exposed. And so even I was thinking about, there was a report of a muni driver in California who in July, who like got beat, like he was driving the bus and three guys got on and didn't, weren't wearing masks. And they were saying, you need to wear masks. And they beat him because they were like, you're Asian, you have COVID-19. It's like, you know, so many levels to that. Like, so, but essentially, essentially, right. It's this, it's this problem of like, you can't even go about your daily job during the lockdown and not be afraid. You're afraid to wear masks. You're afraid not to wear masks. Right. You're, and so I think, and I think the other side of it is an interesting sort of response, really giving Asian Americans this opportunity to, again, like remind ourselves about a history of racism that has always existed and is only now being revealed or flaring up because of COVID-19. So these political structures that we've built up over time, these organizations, these grassroots organizing, really have this opportunity to respond 
in a way that builds solidarity with other groups because we know African-American men, for example, can't wear masks so they're racially profiled. Like there's, uh, so I think, I think there's an opportunity here for people to really make themselves heard. And I know we see a lot of social media sort of like hashtags and I'm not a virus and, and things like that. But also like like real outreach and organizing across solid across communities, right? Within to to remind ourselves like what what can be useful about an Asian American political identity, right? I mean there are costs to it, but there there's also things that can be done in terms of like voting advocacy on the local level, changing laws, helping to support Black Lives Matter movements on on policing issues. Because essentially, and when you talk about like defunding the police, it's really more like investing in community, right? And in resources that are not only gonna help African-Americans, right? They're actually like, we could really do with more social services and community centers and things, right? And, and like, and so the fact that that a lot of these centers have been defunded, social welfare has been defunded in the US for so long. Like like the fact that that we're redistributing, that, that you can vote to like help to redistribute resources that will improve the community in terms of public resources isn't yeah. only going to float like one racial minority group's boat, right? It actually helps everybody. Everyone. So, yeah. And yeah. so I think that's the opportunity this sort of pandemic and racial racial crisis also presents. Yes. So, so we, you know, I think that one of the biggest takeaways is that we all have to be one another's advocate, right? And, and we have to, we have to stand together and, you know, really, really try to be good allies. I mean, I think that, that we're all in this together. So, oh, wow, Kara, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much. I think we've covered so much ground today and I've learned so much, so much. So tell us, when are you, when, when, when are you slated to defend? How much um, money you got? Yeah, I'm in my last semester. I'm just yes. working on a lot of, like I said, these projects. It's very exciting. And yeah, I'm just, I'm so glad I was able to talk with you and your, your community. There were great questions. I really enjoyed this. Great. Thank you so much. And I will definitely be keeping in touch and, and really looking, looking forward to, to seeing more of your research. So thank you again. Thank you. So this has been another episode of AAVMC's Diversity and Inclusion on Air. It's my guest, Kara. Thank you again for so much for being on the show. Be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app. We're on all of them. And like us on Facebook. Our Facebook page is AAVMC's Diversity and Inclusion on Air. And with that, I will end today's show. Thanks for listening. Thank you.